Hey everybody, and welcome to the second ever episode of From Mississippi with Love, the world's premier podcast about Mississippi culture, pop culture, music, art, film, literature, etc. Today, we're sitting down to talk about the Joel Schumacher film, A Time to Kill, based on the John Grisham novel of the same title. My guest today is Nick Wofford, who's getting his PhD in mathematics at the University of Mississippi, and who's a lifelong Mississippian. So we sat down for a chat, and I sure hope y'all enjoy it. So today we are talking about A Time to Kill, the Joel Schumacher movie adaptation of the Grisham book, directed in 1996, and a year later, Joel Schumacher put nipples on Batman. That is correct. His career was maybe on a downslope at that point. I'm not Wait, actually... Pre, uh, pre or post nipples? Certainly post. A Time to Kill, at least, I think was a, a much better received movie than his Batman film. People did not like the movie. <laughs> They did not. Not to talk about Batman too much. But same guy, one year later, Batman with George Clooney. Yes, right. He did uh, Batman Forever, which was with uh, Val Kilmer, and then he did Batman and Robin with George Clooney. And so A Time to Kill was in between? Yes, A Time to Kill was in between his two Batman movies. Uh, all right, kind of an odd CV, but whatever floats yes. your boat, I guess. <laughs> okay, so we've got little baby McConaughey. Samuel Jackson, Sandra Bullock, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, lots of people. Okay, so the movie opens on mm -hmm. a hazy field of, I think, soybeans. We get our two redneck criminal scumbags driving and drinking and raising hell through the field, like clearly up to no good, mm. like on the way into like a black neighborhood and stuff. Yes, you get a, a solid picture, I think, of because the movie is actually fairly contemporary. It's it's not a period piece. That's maybe something that uh, a viewer not from uh, the rural South or rural Appalachia might kind of catch on to. It, it can feel a bit like a period piece because their cars are old, their clothes are old. Um, I, I did wonder that for a second. Well, because it wasn't even like when I was looking at the poor folks, it was when McConaughey's rolling up in mm -hmm. his nice car nice but old car i was like oh is this set in the 80s but it was not like you mentioned right it's i guess a little unclear about whether or not the movie is set in the 80s or the 90s because the the film is 96 the the novel came out in 89 could be trying to shoot for maybe the novel's uh image but certainly even, even for the 80s even it's still, a little yeah. uh it's a little period PC, and that's uh, a, a kind of a good picture of how slow certain like rural places, especially rural poor places, can kind of absorb cultural trends and things like that. Um, they they dress more of like an old fashioned way. That's certainly true in my experience as a Mississippian. That usually fashion trends and uh, technology get here kind of last out of the country, yeah. like. Once it filters down to a point where it's more affordable um, and stuff actually gets to the south. So right off the bat, you can see it, it looks almost like a period piece when the I, I think only one of them is a cop. 
and the other one is yeah. uh, just his friend when they actually like do the rape and the attempted murder the period setting immediately looks like it's outdated um, right. But that's probably just a, a sign of the South being outdated. And I did want to say that, like, these drunky criminal rednecks are, like, the most negative of Mississippi. But mm-hmm. I also, I know those guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, they're, they're, It's not like they're, I don't know what the opposite phrase for a diamond in the rough would be. Like a more common thing. But, like, yeah, mm-hmm. the opposite of a diamond in the rough. A, a thorn in the middle of a bush like these two are terrible terrible people to the point that even racist people in canton also don't like the cop after the rape the first thing that we get of like the townspeople knowing the cobs and the his friend subgroup of uh people in town is when the, the deputy looney uh is he catches jake uh, Matthew McConaughey's character with uh, Harry Rex, Oliver Platt's character, talking in a diner. And he asks him, you know, do you remember Billy Ray Cobb? Or did you defend him on that? Uh, you kind of instantly know that, like, the Cobbs have a criminal background. This Them being arrested for this would not even be close to the first time that they've been arrested for things. So, like, they have a criminal background. And people in especially like the uppity south would certainly not want to to associate with their type so that they are at that level of bad right um i do briefly we've alluded to the rape and i don't want to discuss it at length but i do want to say that one thing this movie does not do is like pull punches as far as both like the rape's description later in the courtroom and then how it's portrayed in the film like you see her bloody legs her tied up the guy like on top of her from her pov there's no cut to black it like shows it 1996 in a way. is definitely pre trigger warnings but this movie would certainly get one today and should like have that kind of notification very uncomfortable scene at the opening and then the finale is also uncomfortable yeah they don't show it but i think they show as much as they could they certainly there's not the spirit of holding back to show like the atrocity of this thing grisham definitely doesn't pull punches on these kinds of cases this is probably true throughout the grisham canon that his view of the law is not naive. His characters are frequently naive at the beginning mm-hmm. of their books, but the the actual outcomes over the course of his books are uh, not naive at all about the kinds of crimes that people will do and commit to each other, and then also yeah. the way that the justice system will actually handle those crimes, which is ultimately the point of this movie uh, and book, is that they definitely did the crime, and Jake is very, very blunt with Carl Lee uh, when he asks him, do you think they're going to go free? And he's like, yeah, they probably are. <laughs> like, it's, it's right. certainly true that, like, they're, they're probably not going to get charged with this. They're in Canton, Mississippi. Right. Um, a real place. Yes. Canton, Mississippi is a real town in uh, Mississippi. It's in Madison County. Um, it's actually the county seat of Madison County, just outside of Jackson. Canton, as far as its demographic, is... Uh, the, the actual city itself is very uh, African-American, only about 20% white today due to like jury selection, things like that. It's actually much easier to select an all-white jury in a place uh, like Canton than if, say, in the, the film, Jake had successfully moved the trial to somewhere in the Delta, um, perhaps, or even just away even from Canton. Even Jackson, maybe. Yes, absolutely. If, he'd, he, if he could have just moved it down one county, that would have probably helped a, a, a huge bit. Um, that's probably one of the more visual uh, pictures of uh rural southern court shenanigans is after the jury selection looks at the jury because yeah. that's a jury of my peers all 12 of them are white in a state yeah. that has the highest percentage of black people of any state in the union the jury happened to be picked all white um so yeah. 
that is immediately a red flag. Guaranteed, that's a bad sign. And Kevin Spacey's character does not hold that back either um, before they select the jury. Oh, sorry, you mean Rufus Buckley? Yes, Rufus Buckley. He immediately says in his office at one point, as he's explaining it to his intern, uh, and therefore the audience, is if they can keep the trial in Canton, then it's an all-white jury for sure, and an all-white jury for sure is guaranteed to hang him. There's no way. So he's like, we, we got it on lock if we can keep it here. So our main character is Jake Brigance, mm-hmm. um, who's Matthew McConaughey's character. Yes. And we've also got Oliver Platt as Harry Rex Vonner, mm-hmm. who is hysterical. Uh, yes, Harry Rex is a great character. Um, he, he's we a very also, fun character. we know that guy, the Harry Rex type. Oh, we know yes, that guy. Absolutely. The drunky. Yeah, oh, yes. the drunky I mean, yet affluent, morally compromised. He's a frat, frat boy. boy. Um, I was absolutely. gonna say probably, probably a beta. He's like, he's certainly a frat boy for sure. And his his level, like he is a, a he is one of the good guys and a a, a quote unquote good character. But he also has a you know a, a slight southern bent on morality, um, where things work just like a little differently. Elaborate uh, on that, because he. Well, his first scene that we yeah, see him is him drunk that. driving, uh, when he drives Jake to work because Jake's car isn't working, so he hops in Harry Rex's convertible, and the first thing Harry Rex does from behind the wheel is hand him a brown paper bag and a bottle of liquor, and Jake doesn't even stop him from drinking and driving; he just has him push it down so that nobody sees him drinking and driving. <laughs> right. Um, and Both then. Both lawyers, also. Right. They're both lawyers. They are both lawyers. They know that that is very illegal, and they just, you know, it's it's a rural place though, so you just kind of push that down. And then we know we learn from his career that Harry Rex is a divorce lawyer, so he specializes in uh, taking one side in a situation and just trying to like take the other side to the cleaners. Um, that's usually his go-to. Yeah, his biggest character trait, I think, is morally compromised. Yeah, <laughs> at least an acceptance of being morally compromised. Sure. Um, because he he does actually come on board their legal team. Like he actually That's helps true. Jake, um, and and you know he yeah. he admits that he makes more money if he doesn't do this. Like he he's kind of risking something to do this. So that's probably his biggest character leap. Does if you recall get Sandy, who's the hot young Ole Miss law student. Um, he yes. gets her to like sneak around the prosecution's shrink's office. Yes. Mm-hmm. They find out that yeah. the shrink happens to be a bit corrupt. Uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, necessarily a Southern like marker oh, sure. in yeah, a Grisham yeah. book or a general uh, Grisham criticism of the law, because the law certainly uh, works in that way that prosecutors will hire shrinks who say that you aren't crazy. Um, defense attorneys will hire shrinks that say that you are. So that that like gladiatorial aspect of court is always kind of there no matter what region you're in but definitely in the south it can be more pronounced well everybody knows everybody everybody knows everybody uh you get a great scene of that uh in kevin spacey's office rufus buckley's office um when he finds out that jake brigance is the one representing carl lee and he tells his intern to send to quote send a case of whatever lucius wilbanks is drinking his way i want that old drunk on the sidelines mm-hmm. and what that should kind of signal there is that Rufus knows Lucius Wilbanks. Like at, at no point up to there have we been told that they know each other, but it's a small rural town in Mississippi. Like there's actually a pretty solid chance that if they go to church, that they probably go to the same one, right? right. There's, <laughs> there's probably a huge white first Baptist church that 
white folks like Rufus Buckley and Jake Brigantz and Harry Rex Vonner and Lucius Wilbanks all go to because they're also like the upper class. So the Cobbs probably don't go to the same church. Right. That I was going to say the church Rufus with Buckley the most does, but... social capital. Yes, absolutely. With the most status. Uh, Judge Noose. Mm-hmm. Little little on the nose there, but Judge Noose. I was, um, <laughs> that is in my notes. I was like, Judge Noose, huh? Settle. Yeah. <laughs> Who also knows everybody. Um, for example, meeting Jake on his own front porch at his house. <laughs> right. That's, that's probably uh, an ethical violation that would not fly in a less rural place or a place outside of the South. But in the South, nobody would really bat an eye at uh, an attorney from a small town. Because... In that sense, they're not an attorney and a judge. They're just like two people in that small town. Um, who knew who knew each other before will continue to interact and know each other after. Exactly. But in this kind of setting, it, it wouldn't trip anybody up to see that kind of thing. Right. I do want to real quick, I forgot to do this at the beginning. I meant to. I want to talk a little bit about John Grisham briefly. And then like, I want to talk some about your experience with Grisham's work growing up. So A Time to Kill was Grisham's first book. Yes, his first novel. Yep. That is wild to me because it's so heavy. That's true. Um, He went straight for like race and prejudice and rape and judicial unfairness in the South, mm -hmm. like straight off. He got his law degree at Ole Miss. And again, Sandra Bullock's character, Ellen Ro- Roark. Ellen Roark. Roark. Yeah, Miss Roark. At Ole Miss. So, hotty toddy. And the corrupt physician for the prosecution is from Mississippi State. So, it's the only <laughs> mention of them in the movie, and all the good guys are from Ole Miss. <laughs> right, which is a bit strange. You have to wonder if maybe he had a heel turn at some point in his own personal life, because John Grisham is a Mississippi State alum. Yes, for um, undergrad. So, you know, maybe he ended up falling more in love with the Ole Miss. Yeah, so Sandy's character is from Ole Miss, the evil doctor's from Mississippi State. Um, and so, yeah, Grisham himself got his law degree at Ole Miss. Is actually a politician in Mississippi, which I learned today while researching. Uh, John Grisham was? Yeah. He was a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives for the 7th District from 84 to 90. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I didn't know that. I learned that today. So what is your own experience with Grisham? I know that you thought about being a lawyer for many years. Yes, I I originally, um, I'm a math instructor now, um, but my high school class ring actually has uh, a gavel on it um, because I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I thought about being a prosecutor. Uh, This was after reading several John Grisham books. The first John Grisham book that I read uh, was The Client. That is his 1993 book um, set in Memphis, and then it moves to Louisiana uh, after that. It's more of like a political, not a political, it's more of like a thriller with just like a legal backdrop um, instead of like a heavier hitting uh, book. Uh, and then I started to read more and more of them. Uh, now I've read almost all of his non-Theodore Boone books. Uh, Theodore Boone is his uh, kids' books that are also legal thrillers, just uh, set in the perspective of a, a little kid who works at his dad's law office, if I remember correctly. But I've read almost all of his novels that are legal thrillers. So A Time to Kill is his first. Um, it's uh kind of interesting i guess he he sort of takes a break after a a time to kill from uh maybe the the heavier material um because his next three books uh, i would argue are pretty like non-political thrillers they definitely have like politically centered plots but they're they're not quite as political um 
when he decides to approach politics, it is usually uh, kind of a Southern thing. So A Time to Kill is his first book and deals with the, the sort of the inequalities there between justice for white people and justice for black people in the South. And right. it's not until later uh, in 94 when he writes The Chamber that he starts getting back into the that kind of makeup. That kind of thing he definitely tackles. Um, if you're going to tackle inequality in the South, it, it's probably impossible to talk about that without bringing up race because so much of our inequality is centered around in a time to kill uh you see carly haley's family is definitely in like a segregated part of town even if this is the 90s and there's no legal segregation black people still don't get to live around white people because the white people either move or use other various tricks to to keep the their towns the way they are Right, and and the whiteness is so separate from that space that Carl Lee critiques Jake when they're having mm. a discussion in prison and says, do you even know where I live? The he answer certainly is does no. Not. The races are so segregated that, you know, Jake has no conception of where he lives. Right, mm-hmm. and it it ends on a hopeful note with Jake bringing his daughter to, to the cookout to try to actually, you know, uh, even as... Jake clearly believes that he is like, quote unquote, one of the good ones. He's not uh, like the Cobbs and he's not like Rufus. But Carly does point out and is correct that like our kids have never played together. You probably don't know where I live. The only time you've ever talked to me is when you defended my brother for a charge like a year or two ago. And then now when you're defending me, it's still like work. At, at one point, McConaughey says something like we make a good team. Yes. And and Carly says, you're out there, Jake. I'm in here. We ain't no team. Yeah. And that's 100% correct in that situation. Um, and from both a free versus imprisoned standpoint, but also a, a white versus black standpoint. Right. Exactly. Because certainly if the shoe were on the other foot, and I think that's kind of an undercurrent that's never really addressed in the, the movie, but... Certainly the argument is uh, not much of a stretch in the context of the movie that if you just flipped the skin color of the people involved uh, in the central crime. So two black guys uh, sexually assaulted a little like a little girl like Jake's little girl or something. And then he killed them in cold blood. There wouldn't even be a trial. Um, There's there's no way he would even be arrested for that. Like, well, but I think that's the central conceit of Jake's like final summation. Yes. His his final point uh, is that and what gets him to break through to that jury is that is he gives up on his original argument, which was sort of a colorblind. We're better than this. You know, even though Carly's black, we're, we we know kind of what we should do in this situation. He gives up on that and says, honestly, guys, just what if what if Carly was white? Like, what if Tanya was white in that situation? What would you do? And and the emotion just like washes over them instantly because they realize like, oh, man, I would be feeling so much different in this situation if uh, if Carly and Tanya were white. Right. And so since the, since they're not, he has to kind of get the jury to, to take that leap of empathy there. And Jake only comes to that strategy because he and Carly have that conversation in the prison um, mm-hmm. in which Carly says America is a war and you are on the other side. Mm hmm in an attempt to make him aware of some of his own privilege. And while Jake does realize this, it's be- it's begrudgingly. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't much like being called one of the bad guys. Yes, he, he clearly looks angry. And, I mean, that, that's certainly a real-world accusation. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're familiar with the idea of someone being called racist and getting very, very upset by that or 
someone I don't want to say accused, but um, telling someone that something they've done might be insensitive um, can certainly make some people feel irritated and upset about that. So Jake clearly has that reaction. Um, right. It, it's maybe a, a an optimistic take in the movie that his he immediate he kind of overnight buries that reaction, uses it to win his case, um, and then actually you know tries to to change that. Um, well, because Carly is right, because he says, "What would you have to hear if you were on that jury to get you to say not guilty?" And right. this leads Jake to his idea of justice not being colorblind. You know, ju- he says it's a reflection of our own prejudices. And that's how he ultimately wins the case. So he seems upset by it, but Carly isn't wrong. And it's ultimately, I think, like that gives him the win. Right. Yes, absolutely. The, the approach for colorblindness would not have worked. That speech, that switch, I think, is maybe um, maybe an argument that's getting made there by Grisham that I don't think that you can change outcomes if you kind of beat your head into a wall. Um, and certainly uh, for people like Jake, who seems to be a good person um jake is is certainly a good guy um he's still not until the end of the movie in that conversation with uh carl lee does he actually come to the conclusion that like no i i'm i'm i think i'm a good person and you can even still be a good person after you realize this it doesn't make make you a bad person to realize this but he certainly benefits from being a white guy like yeah he's he's part of this society that favors him over other people he 100 percent benefits um from all that I do want to talk about the clan because mm-hmm. that is a thing that shows up in this movie. Yep. So absolutely. Kiefer Sutherland like reactivates the clan in this area because mm-hmm. they say, you know, ain't no clan around here. Right. One, ain't been no clan around here in years. Ain't no clan around here. And my first reaction was like, yeah, I doubt that very much. I mean, only share what you're comfortable. Obviously, did you mm-hmm. like hear about the clan growing up in rural Mississippi? So I did. Um, specifically, uh, I'm I'm from around Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, we had a Klan march there. I think when I was in high school, um, I remember that, and I remember my dad, maybe an embellished uh, Fisher story kind of thing, uh, saying he stumbled onto them meeting one time and ran into him. He always told me to stay away from uh, that part of town because he thought that that was where the Klan met because uh, he supposedly stumbled onto them uh, one time. So there were both both whispers of clan activity, but then organized like marches. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And today the clan is certainly much weaker than it was. Um, looking at the numbers, um, estimates have them set at like five to eight thousand members, which is not that many. Still too many, but yeah, still not certainly that many. too many. But uh, <laughs> at the the peak of the clan, they were pushing in the millions. They had at Jesus. least three million members. So the the KKK was a uh, that's where that kind of line comes from when he says uh, ain't been no clan around here in years. It's because that they have waned. I don't mean to say that the clan's membership has declined to try to argue that like we're done. It's guys. better now. Um, yeah, we fixed racism. It's all better. It's all done. Um, in fact, I would argue that that is almost certainly not true. Oh, can we briefly address how good Matthew McConaughey looks in this movie? Oh, quite. He So first off, visually, uh, they nail a lot of things. Every character is almost always sweaty. That is certainly accurate to the South. Any image you look up for this movie and any at, at any time, every one of these characters is sweaty. Like if you just look at them in that film, every one of these characters is sweaty. Inside, um, outside, in the hospital, at court, it in doesn't the house. Matter. Yeah, there, there's no universe <laughs> where these characters aren't sweaty because it is always hot. It is always humid. 
so for McConaughey's look specifically, anytime he's not in his suit, uh, they nail that too, because you are not going to wear a lot of clothes in the rural South. Um, when McConaughey... He's, he's wearing a sleeveless tee when he goes out with Sandy. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's wearing that almost all the time. Uh, a lot of times he's not even wearing a shirt. He'll be in like a tank or he just doesn't have a shirt on. Like, yeah. that's just, that's how it goes. I guess I forgot how good he looks because... Um, he's playing raggedy redneck characters these days in his older age. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, he's letting his hair grow down. And, uh, he's always stubbly and long-haired and like raggedy. I'm like, oh no. Yeah, no. Back then he was repping much more of a, like Oof. a boyish charm. So we hit the courtroom early in this movie, but it was around the 30-minute mark. Which, you know, as opposed to like a Law and Order episode where a court is a couple minutes at the end, if that. This mm. is mostly like a courtroom movie. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. You you pretty quickly get to the part where Carly is at least on trial. And they don't like skip any part of the trial. So you do the bail, uh, which the judge immediately denies. Um, then you do the um, jury selection. That goes south. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, then... Uh, <laughs> Then you do um, the actual trial um, and bringing in witnesses and all that kind of thing. So uh, and then closing arguments. So they don't skip like any part of the trial. Okay. Next, I would I want to talk about the romantic subplot between mm-hmm. Ellen Rourke and um, Jake Brigance. And the only thing I really want to mention about it is that this movie has one of my favorite romance tropes, which is the post-injury patch-up. Oh, yeah, when uh, Jake gets uh, knifed at the riot. And, of course, he gets knifed, like, on the upper inner thigh. On the upper thigh. So, <laughs> so Sandy has to take his pants off to patch him up. And, and he's he admits married. he's not wearing undies. Right. And he's married, but his wife's out of town now because they're on a rough patch. And, you know, obviously because of the danger, they're on a rough patch. But still, that's that's why she's out of town. And so it, it, it absolutely brushes up on jake thinking about committing an uh, adultery like he's thinking about having an affair he 100%. says i want you to stay so you better go mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah because they talk about like they get drunk and talk about violence and justice while they eat crawfish and fried pickles which i greatly appreciated but i think maybe their best scene not as a couple but just as like two characters kind of butting heads is when they argue about the death penalty um, which is not something I super want to get into, but just that Jake believes in the death penalty. Rourke does not. He uh, yeah. Jake says, I do not believe in forgiveness nor rehabilitation. I believe in safety. I believe in justice. Yeah, uh, he 100%. It's a really strange thing to say for a defense attorney. Right. But that, I think, is also typical of the South, though. Um, you're not going to find a huge contingency of anti-death row, uh, pro-clemency folks in the south um it's just it it would not be a popular issue this movie's set in mississippi but i mean we're not that far from texas which is famously where the most executions happen of any state in the union so i i guess that scene shows that like there are liberals in the south quote-unquote liberals um like jake would certainly be like pretty left of most of the folks in his town it seems like um especially being a a protege of lucius wilbanks who is a civil rights activist Donald Sutherland's character. He certainly is left of the people in this town, but that does not, that, that only goes so far. 
Um, he is absolutely pro. I mean, he's not even pro death penalty so much as he is like very pro death penalty because he he doesn't even like couch it in like I really wish we didn't have to do this or something like that. He he straight up says uh, I forget what he's talking about. I think he says a a crack dealer kills an undercover cop. You put him in the chair and flip the switch, and he, like he just so bluntly throws and that Rourke, out there. Rourke is like horrified. Yeah, she's completely shocked by that. She's like, oh my god, I can't believe this is like the case. Like what what's going on here? Because like yeah, because I, I think she's originally from boston she is originally from boston she has gone down to Ole miss to study law her dad is a famous lawyer and so she is shocked that jake advocates for the death penalty and jake replies he says quote spare me your northern liberal we are the only enlightened ones in the northern hemisphere bullshit yeah <laughs> uh this is maybe like outside like reading but the book atticus finch in that book the author makes the the point that southerners are often really defensive in general like i mean the the original term like the origin of the word carpet bagging uh related to people coming to the south not being from the south and trying yes, to like change carpet it. bag so, was a, a type and pattern of like suitcase right mm-hmm. so uh even like the origin of that comes from this region uh southerners it there is no limit to the kinds of arguments we'll make just to be able to say that we were the ones who did something and not that someone else convinced us to do something. There is no universe where we will not argue something if it comes down to that. So the fact that Miss Roark is coming in from outside the South and making this argument, Jake immediately is going to be a Instantly. lot more callous there. They, they weren't talking about region at all. She says, I can't, she basically says, I cannot believe you advocate the death penalty. And he's like, well, aren't you Miss Fancy Northern yeah. Hippie bullshit? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is uh, that is a textbook Southerner. Uh, absolutely. Um, On we are... the other hand, we've all done that, and oh, he's not totally wrong. I, I don't mean to say that the South is wholly incorrect in being, uh, or even like majority incorrect in being defensive of its of its region. There's certainly a lot of stuff about the South that gets tied up in the the negative things that we do here. Uh, well, and it, it becomes a scapegoat for the nation's problems a lot of the time. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, and so um, she she fires back that he's um, trying to be a JFK meets Jesus Christ white boy for taking her to this diner in this black neighborhood. Right, which... It's like a it, wo- gesture of wokeness on his part. Right, which is interesting because I I, I recall the scene and I, I don't remember him bringing up that the restaurant, like that's why he took her there. So I'm not sure what to make of that particular line um because she's the one like that points that out like he's virtue signaling if he goes into a black space right exactly because it's it's not necessarily that he was doing that at least i don't know if there's maybe a deleted scene that shows jake trying to show off and being like here's the best restaurant in town look at all the black folks that work here and run run the place and stuff like that um i don't know if he ever like brags in the deleted scenes but at least in the actual scene that we have they just like end up at that restaurant and she's right. the one who points out how many black people are around in the restaurant as if it was his plan, but it may not have been. Um, I know that's something that throws people off about the South is exactly how diverse the South actually is. Um, the South is an incredibly diverse place. Although you um, mentioned often unofficially segregated. Right, exactly. So depending on where you live, um, the South can look like Maine or it can look like, uh, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, right. right. You could look like the Delta. Um, Jackson, Mississippi currently has uh, a democratic socialist mayor, uh, 
Chokwe Lumumba uh, is mayor down there right now, uh, which I have told people not from here, and they find that incredibly surprising. So, like, I think a lot of times when people picture the South, they're expecting it to be mostly, like, white rednecks. Um, and homogenous, yeah. And homogenous, yeah. People think it's a lot more homogenous than it is. Um, and it is true. The South is, like, pretty heavily segregated. So depending on where you are, it may look very homogenous. Um, but Canton is not one of those places. Um, being so close to Jackson, um, it's not the most homogenous place. It, it is segregated within the town itself. Um, as we see in the movie, there's there's parts of town that where Samuel Jackson's family lives and there's parts of towns where Jake lives, and there don't doesn't seem to be much of a, a mix going on there. But right. within the city limits itself, it it has a majority black population. Okay, there is um one last kind of serious point I wanted to talk to you about, and then I have a fun little game I want us to play. Mm-hmm. The day before they appear in court, Jake goes to the courthouse in downtown Canton, Mississippi, and is walking on top of this beautiful inlaid state seal. The next day, the two rapists are killed on the state seal, and the Mississippi state motto is Virtute et Armis, Virtue in Arms. And that, to me, seemed like very, very intentional framing of the scene of violence because we've got kind of a glorification of vigilante justice on the state seal. Virtue and arms versus, like, virtue through arms or virtue with arms. Because Carl Lee expresses you know, a pursuit of what he thinks is good and right through arms. Like, is there a time to kill? And, like, what is the valorization of violence in the motto? You know, how does that inform the framing of the scene? Right. Well, um, you also get the uh, himself a native Mississippian uh, and the, the, like, most liberal person there still says that uh, with Lucius, when he's talking to Jake at his house, um, at Lucius's house, he says, no matter how this trial turns out, you're going to get justice because either we condemn vigilante justice or we condemn vigilante justice. Then we're kind of condoning what the Cobb guy did. Either result from this trial ends up supporting the death penalty. A uh, weird bit of trivia about this movie is that it had uh, a very strong reaction in France where they are uh, very opposed to the death penalty um, as a culture. Uh, they changed the name of the movie. Uh, they put a question mark at the end of it. Um, I read about this, and they also used the word right. Yeah. Not a time to kill, but a right to kill. People did not like the movie at all in France. I mean, especially the final conclusion is that Samuel L. Jackson was in the right to kill them. I don't know what what I think about that reaction, because the thing is, if you don't acquit Samuel L. Jackson, then you're going to have him executed. Everybody knows that that's more violence. Here. He's absolutely going to be hanged. The judge, I think, at one point promises him life in prison or 30 years or something if he confess if he pleads yes, guilty. Yes, if he pleads guilty. Honestly, there's really no there's there's no like obvious guarantee there for Jake to take that. So the death penalty on top of the the seal kind of getting carried out is an interesting like image, I guess. Of state sanctioned violence versus vigilante justice. Yeah, virtue in arms. And so, like you mentioned, innocent verdict. Carl Lee um, and his daughter hug in front of the courthouse after he is released. Um, and there's a kind of a lingering background shot of the flag, um, the American flag, but then also the Mississippi state flag, which has mm-hmm. the Confederate flag in it, which the KKK has been using as a symbol the whole movie. Right. So I yeah. just think that's interesting. Mississippi is an interesting place, dude. It's a wild place. Yeah, our flag is the only state flag to still have the Confederate flag in it. Those symbols like are all around us, and that that's 
the reason I think this story still works today, especially, is because actually it, it's not the craziest thing in the world. Um, it's not. Uh, maybe in 2018, you could argue that those two white guys are definitely going to get tried and convicted. I think that's probably true. Um, I, I don't think that they would get acquitted, but we know that you know there, we have heavy data to suggest that there is a huge racial disparity in sentencing. So certainly the once they had been convicted, I I doubt they would have been looking at you know life in prison or the death penalty in the same way that Carl Lee is. I, I think this story is still like uh, a relevant and good one. Not all of John Grisham's books still check out in like 2018. And it's interesting that the earliest of his books is probably the most prescient, you know, forward thinking and like mm. still relevant. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. Last little activity I want us to do. Mm. I want us to rank that accent. Uh, okay. Let's check the accents. Um, so I've got a list. My personal choices. Okay. One to five. Best to worst accent for our main male cast. Okay. Male cast. Okay. Because there are only a couple female characters, and they do not make Sandy attempt a southern accent. So, just for, like, how it soothes me, uh, maybe I'll start low. Um, low. My number. Hit I'll me. start low. Hit five. Five, gotta be Kevin Spacey. Um, Bitch, I, I put Kevin think... Spacey. That guy sucks. It's not good. It's <laughs> it's very bad. Um, It's very outdated. Kevin Spacey sounds like he's doing, like, a Scarlett O'Hara thing. It's very outdated. Like he's doing his Magnolia Plantation House of Cards. New yeah. He's from New Jersey. Right. Like he's doing his New Jersey take on fried green tomatoes. Right. Exactly. It's very much like a Blanche Devereaux. Well, first of all, we're not gonna slander the good name of Rue McClanahan on this podcast. I mean, Rue at least is from a time period where that accent would make sense. Kevin Spacey. Sure. That's that's the problem is that Kevin yeah. Spacey is trying to imitate the southern accent of a woman who is like ninety oh, whenever this came man. out. So yeah, um, and um, he does not say you're on. He says Yana. Yeah, Jesus, it's really bad. <laughs> who next on your list for there was an attempt? So for people who there was an attempt, I would say Kurtwood Smith. That's uh, Kurtwood Smith is. Uh, the dad in that 70s show. Um, and in this, he plays oh, Stump Sisson. The, Stump Sisson, the Grand Dragon yeah, of the, the Grand Clever. Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, who right. looks like he works at like a warehouse. I don't know. It, like in his outfit, I don't know if they ever actually say what his job is, but he looks like he manages like a Best Buy. Uh, his accent is my next one. Um, it's at least closer to accurate, I think. Mostly shedding the the 1930s Gone with the Wind thing. I so, did. I did not. He did not place for me. He only has a couple lines of dialogue, so I didn't put him on here. Yeah. Uh, who is your number four? My number four was the Donald Sutherland. Oh yes, Lucian. His is fine. I I was gonna put him at three. Um, I okay. Think his, is, uh, his his is fine. He is Canadian. It's all right. It's a little heavy. It's not as bad as Kevin Spacey, but it's not great. So was, I, I would put a three. I've got Spacey at five, Donald at four. Okay, so my middle but still not great is Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer, yeah, his is uh, a little strange. Kiefer probably does the best redneck of the, the movie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that is an accent that I am very familiar with. One so, might even um, say your native accent. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say my, my homegrown <laughs> accent. Uh, and Kiefer, I think, did a pretty good job at that. Which I is think. why I did not damn him, nor did I really praise him he's solid middle for me he didn't end up on my list i guess just because like to me it's it's pretty good performance from it so you know no offense to him i just uh i've got other spots to hand out okay so you got a number three for me 
I said my number three was Donald. Um, I like oh, the, oh, oh, I like right. the old man drunk. I think he <laughs> he slurs pretty well there. Who's clocking in at number two? So my number two, and I don't know. So this is me trying to talk about like who nails the accent. So I guess I could do a two and one. That's boring. Yeah, just and hit it. So the people who nail the accent is definitely my number two is Matthew McConaughey. I think it, his Jake accent is pretty spot on. Um, I think that's just his accent. I mean, he's from Texas. He's from I, Texas. I think he knows how to kind of put that accent on. And let me see, because Texas is a big state. so Texas forever. He's from close to the border, so it's just his accent. Obviously, it's just, you know, in his favor. And then my number one is going to be Samuel Jackson for, like, my boring list, because he is straight up, grew up in Chattanooga. He nails the southern accent. I had him and McConaughey flipped. I had Samuel Jackson at number two and McConaughey at number one. Yep. So those are those would be my two boring ones, just because like I think it makes sense that they don't put on like a weird, you know, Gone with the Wind thing or. It's not. That. They don't get weird with it. You can tell who's from the north and oh, yeah. like Canada in this movie. I oh, mean, yeah. they're fine. I think to the non-southern audience, it would be fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Kevin Spacey borders are ridiculous sometimes. Oh yeah, Kevin Spacey is ridiculous. I like his accent as Harry Rex, but Oliver Platt is also from Canada, and he's also putting on this kind of weird like a flowery thing. All right. Well, that's all I got for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for talking about a time to kill with me. It was a fun discussion. I think we Absolutely. got into some good stuff and it's a good movie. I was surprised it wasn't nominated for like awards. Um, the only thing they won is it did win uh, an NAACP image award. Um, it, it actually won that. But other than that, yeah, it didn't really win. It's not much of like, a, it's not necessarily a fun romp because mm. of the, the heavy subject matter uh, going on here, but it's definitely an interesting one, and it does end on like a almost cheesy uh, moment. You have the little kid runs out of the courtroom and yells, "He's innocent!" And I think there's like some upbeat music at the end. Whenever the the sheriff throws the KKK cop to the other side and has him arrested, yeah, and he's like, "I think you belong over there." I think there's like some music there, it's like zingers, sounds, one-liners. Yeah, zingers. It definitely sells out right at the end to, to go for like a a neat bow on top. Um, Gotta get so the people uh, what they want. Yeah, that, that little zinger in there is a, maybe a little strange. So if you're watching it, you might find it a little weird listener towards the end as it kind of neatly wraps everything up. I was fine with it. We needed a little levity after that movie, I thought. Right. You do get a sneak peek there towards the end um, when Sandra Bullock is in the hospital and she hears the verdict. The nurse that delivers her verdict is actually played by Octavia Spencer. I was going to um, mention that. She's a very small cameo in this yes. movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not a cameo so much as she wasn't famous yet. It was her first role uh, in a movie. Wow. So oh, that's amazing. It's Octavia Spencer. Well, thank you for this discussion. It was a good time. If you want to come back on and do more Grisham, I know you are the expert. We will be in touch. That is true. We are married. I don't know if that's a reveal. Um, I didn't mention time- it. At the time that we're recording this, I have not heard your intro for this episode, so I have no idea. If I, didn't, I didn't say it. Surprise, we're made. Look, I'm a career woman. That I've is true. I've got my own shit going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's the end of the pod. Time oh, to man. work. Make us sound smart. Just get up in there.
All right. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed the second episode of From Mississippi with Love. Big thanks to my special guest, Nick Wofford, for coming in and talking about John Grisham with us. Thanks, as always, to the Holy Ghost Electric Show for the use of their song, Let the Waters Rise, off of the album, The Great American Holy Ghost Electric Show. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, you can do so at Mississippi underscore pod. As always, that is M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. The release schedule is liable to be a little bit sporadic as I move into final paper season for this fall semester. I thank y'all for your patience as I attempt to turn this podcast into a more regular entity, but I sure do appreciate y'all tuning in, and I will see you next time.